0: Is the liberty movement in trouble? Today, I speak with Brad Lips. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak and today I am speaking with Brad Lips. Brad is the Chief Executive Officer of Atlas Network and the author of several books one of which we'll be focusing on today, entitled Liberalism and the Free Society. So, Brad, our question today is, is the liberty movement in trouble?
1: Yeah, well, well, thank you, Sabine. Uh, It's going to be fun to to talk this through. Um, I I do think that our our world is confronting a lot of troubles um, here in uh, November uh, 2023. Um, We've seen the the health crisis of COVID morph into a real freedom crisis, I would call it. We've got lots of economic dark, dark clouds. Um, and then I think we in many countries, see political polarization driving some of the, the worst aspects of our political culture. So it feels like a really fragile time. And I, I do get anxious that the, um, you know, the Liberty Movement, um, which uh, you and I are part of and which I think has a lot of the the answers for what is necessary to chart a path out of some of our troubles. It does feel like we're outgunned a lot, um, even with all the improvements that I've seen in our ranks in terms of liberty-oriented organizations becoming um, better messengers, um, just more, uh, more well-run and more cost-effective, um, it still feels like enemies of freedom have more resources and you know, fewer qualms about fighting dirty. So sometimes it feels like we are falling behind. Um, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really challenging time. Um, but with all that said, I think it's um, it's maybe a mistake to think about it as this big abstraction, like we can talk about um, the state of the liberty movement, um, you know, writ large. I, I of course, um, use the abstraction all the time because I do think it's constructive for people to think about the way they have this solidarity with people all around the world. And, you know, while we're tempted to sometimes feel alone, that actually we're part of a really big project to... Um, to kind of nudge uh, civilization in a, in a healthier direction. Um, but, uh, but of course, our liberty movement at the end of the day is composed of organizations and people. And at any moment, um, some of them are, are, are failing, some of them are thriving, and there's always a, a glass half full way to look at the movement. So maybe I'm dodging your question to start off the podcast.
0: We still have lots of time to talk about it. (laughs) Uh, Some in our audience may not have heard of Atlas Network in the past um, or have read things online about Atlas Network that may not be true or could be true. I myself have uh, taken part in a lot of your programming. And I've, um, I've been really enriched by it myself. And I, I'm a big fan of Atlas Network. But and I think other people may not know about it. Um, and that might be by design. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, um, can you explain what it is that your organization does and why?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, a quick, um, like 30-second history. Uh, we were founded by a guy um, back in 1981. Um, someone who in the 1950s had become a pioneer of uh, of the think tank movement. He started to realize that um, trying to change the direction of, uh, the, of the UK through politics was gonna be tough when public opinion was solidly moving towards um, uh, believing in socialism. So he decided that creating a think tank that would use you know, rigorous scholarship, um, you know, sort of active engagement in public debates in the media Um, that was going to be the way that you could change opinion and ultimately unlock opportunities for sympathetic politicians. So it was much more of a sort of bottom-up approach to uh, social change than a a political effort. Um, And uh, when he had this slow success that all of a sudden became very apparent with the election of Margaret Thatcher, who started to say, you know, it it was these ideas that the Institute of Economic Affairs in London uh, pioneered that have become my platform. Um, to take Britain away from having nationalized lots of industry to putting things back in the hands of the private sector. Um, people started to realize what an impact this organization had had, and they wanted to replicate it, invited Anthony Fisher, that you know individual who'd started the IEA in the 50s, to help get other projects off the ground. And then he created Atlas to help replicate the experiment. And from the beginning, he understood that... Um, it would be much more powerful to have um, sort of a choir of independent voices than trying to create like a single entity that was global in nature. So it's really uh, an organization, um, Atlas Network, that has grown organically through the last four decades, um, trying to help independent organizations get off the ground, all of which share... Um, a a basic uh, agreement with the principles of a free society, although they have lots of disagreements on um, how that plays out on different policy issues and so on. We we don't strive to have conformity on any of these topics. Um, And and, and Atlas is just trying to make this movement stronger. And we do that by recognizing what a bottom-up effort it is and that there's a lot of peer-to-peer learning that we can help facilitate and because we get to know our partners so well, um, we've earned the trust of philanthropists that want to see more activity promoting liberty and solving problems through um, free market solutions. So um, we um, have earned their trust, so that we you know, we raise money from them, subgrant it out to our partners, and then we bring people together um, to sort of celebrate successes. So that's sort of the the model um, that we're really just uh, trying to be catalysts to. The improvement of independent efforts that loosely share the same vision. Um, that the thing that maybe I'll, I'll just comment, because you said, maybe people have read um, incorrect things. The thing that uh, amuses me um, is that if, if you do Google us, you'll find things online. Um, you know, it's a tough headline story to um, uh, you know to put a positive spin on. You know, you, you, it's really tough to get people excited about you know Atlas Network plays you know minor facilitating role for hundreds of organizations to do great things um nobody writes that story um so we, we do end up um being very attractive to conspiracy theorists who tend to believe that there is some um nefarious top-down effort to um you know subvert leftist causes or environmentalist causes um and uh um they imagine that we're beholden to some uh, nefarious corporate donors. We take almost zero corporate money. <laughs> so um, there are things that are incorrect online um, b- because they tend to approach this with this fallacy that social change happens from the top down, commanded by um, you know, uh, evil uh, people who want to bankroll things in their own self-interest. Like All of our donors are genuinely interested in how the ideas of liberty unlock uh, opportunity um, for everyone and especially for vulnerable populations. So that's really at the heart of our
0: work. Yeah, in fact, many of your organizations work on environmental issues. Um, they are making positive change in the world um, on issues like climate change. Um, I've noticed that on a lot of the organizations. Um, and a lot of them are are working um, magic on social justice issues around the world. So um, these are things that are really important to a lot of the organizations that uh, our partners with Atlas Network. I know that for a fact. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Anthony Fisher because uh, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I think he's great. And I, I really like the story of him going to Hayek and reading all of this stuff and going to him and saying, I want to do something. I'm going to become a politician to advance your work. And Hayek was like, absolutely not. Please do not do that. <laughs> um, And then he ended up, doing what he did and he was just a chicken farmer (laughs) so he wasn't somebody who was coming from uh a perspective of like i'm a multi-millionaire i want to spend my money on something This chicken farmer was really concerned for liberty i think that's that's really cool (laughs) he's a very interesting man and i would love to do a whole podcast on his life story honestly
1: (laughs) yeah he he was so interesting um and you know he he'd experienced this incredible loss. He was a, a fighter for the Royal Air Force in World War One. Um, so if you know that Churchill quote um, at the end of the Battle of Britain, uh, Churchill said, you know, never have so many owed so much to so few. Um, you know, Anthony Fisher was one of those few that, that had fought against the German uh, Luftwaffe. Um, his brother had died in one of those battles, so he saw his brother die in, in front of him, um, and then he was just so distraught when he said, man, I thought, thought we thought that we fought for freedom <laughs> and here we are, um, replicating the mistakes that, that happened in central Europe, um, when they empowered, um, big government to control, um, society. And that, that tends, you know, Hayek wrote about how the worst tend to get on top. Once you have created these incentives, where it's all about, uh, sort of political control of the broader society and, um, and Antony wanted to reverse that initially with this ambition to go into parliament. But um, so he kind of met Hayek saying, Oh, I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm going to set it right. <laughs> but Hayek was um, really in the midst of putting together thoughts that would uh, come out in his very influential essay two years later um, called the intellectuals and socialism. And Hayek was kind of thinking about, well, how did all this happen? Like the socialists have come to dominate not because they immediately started winning elections. They started to win over the intelligentsia and that later enabled the election of these terrible people. <laughs> so he knew there was going to be a long-term project and was able to convince Fisher to to do that. And maybe just the, uh, the, the little, uh, the, the fun bow we get to put on the story is that um, after the IEA in London, that think tank that Fisher had created, after it had accomplished so much, they had one anniversary dinner where they invited um, Thatcher to um, give a speech. And she pointed over to Antony and some of his colleagues that were there at the founding of the IEA. And she, um, I think the line was, um, they were few, but they were right, and they saved Britain. And I kind of love that once again, you had a great British prime minister talking about the few who'd saved the country. And Antony, again, was in that number.
0: That's really cool. I.
1: Right. I didn't realize <laughs> that's really
0: awesome. <laughs> so we've been yeah. using the term pretty loosely, liberty movement, freedom movement. Uh, I wonder if you could define that for our listeners. What is the freedom movement or the liberty movement?
1: Yeah, um, uh, the, the way that I define it is just um, you know the, the group of people who um, are putting their their time or treasure into um, building an intellectual consensus around these ideas and principles about the, the free society. Um, There's a a great um, Hayek quote in that uh, intellectuals and socialism essay that I referenced um, along the lines of, you know, we need um, to to make the the rebuilding of a free society a a deed of courage and intellectual adventure. And Hayek says something along the lines of um, we need people that are going to uh, resist the blandishments of power. In order to work for an ideal that um, you know may seem like the, I think it's like the early realization of which seems very remote. So it's kind of like people that are willing to work for a cause, even though it might be thankless, um, but because they know it's the right thing. And um, we, uh, so, so that's how I would define the freedom movement. It's, it's people that kind of feel that calling that they want to be involved in building this nonpartisan effort. To um, share the good news with people that there's um, uh, there's a way of looking at the world that gets out of this us versus them psychology that most other ideologies foster. Um, for for us, it's it's really all about the magic of voluntary cooperation that happens when you uh, open the spheres of, of freedom and and get real um, more narrowly defined what the roles the government should have when you do that, I think you see just the magic of cooperation that happens through free markets and civil society. And um, and, and that's a, it's a tough one to communicate um, and sometimes a thankless one to communicate, but that's what the freedom movement uh, is for.
0: Uh, so moving on to talking a little bit more about your book, um, you know, one thing I found fascinating in the book right off the bat is that you're going right into the survey results. So you're not just giving your own opinion, but about where the liberty movement needs to improve, but you've asked the actual people leading the organizations within that movement. Um, and I love that, uh, you're doing a very classical liberal thing, which is, uh, you know, asking, uh, people who have that local knowledge, (laughs) what they think about these things. Uh, can you talk to me about your findings from those surveys and what they see, um, and as wins, like what are the wins and the challenges that you, you, you saw doing all that data research?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so it turns out that there is some some wisdom in in the crowd <laughs> of people who are, are running organizations that you know, fit within this liberty movement and that partner with um, my, my organization, Atlas Network. And um, you know, the, the book was done um, in the middle of 2021, and um, I sort of asked, you know, what are the um, you know the, the um, immediate challenges the freedom movement needs to face, and also the big topics for the for the decade ahead, and um, the. The things that came on the top of that list in terms of, you know, uh, areas of focus for the decade ahead, um, our, our community identified you know, unsustainable levels of public debt and the financial crises that may ensue as a consequence. Um, we talked about the appeal of socialism, especially among younger generations that have not actually lived under socialism, but uh, and maybe for that reason, find the, the concept appealing. Um, there's also a focus on uh, cancel culture and um, th- the, uh, the threats to free expression that are coming through this alliance between big tech and, um, and government, it's sort of a, a new frontier. Um, so, so those were uh, yeah, the, the, the top three on that um, you know, big topics for the decade ahead. And uh, I, I think it's a pretty good list to start from.
0: So those are really big issues. (laughs) They seem kind of overwhelming, actually, when you say like public debt, socialism, cancel culture, free expression. Those are each one of them huge issues and and they seem a bit overwhelming. So it might be really easy as someone working in the movement to write things off and say, like, what's even the point? What are we really achieving? This is way too much. Um, And it's sometimes hard to see the wins because um, the work that people in the freedom movement are doing is Sometimes pretty thankless, <laughs> but right. um, what you really battle that in your writing is you lay out some pretty exciting wins from the f- last 40 years. Uh, as somebody who works in that movement, it's really nice to read them, <laughs> it makes it gets me really excited and, and kind of revs me up to keep achieving our own wins. Um, but can you share some of your favorite ones with us from the beginning of the book? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure thing. Um, and maybe I'll just um back up and say that uh, part of what I think is the sort of psychological challenge for all of us in the movement is to realize that um, while I've come to appreciate that we're probably never going to have this moment of vindication where the communists go and say, um, yeah, sorry about all that human misery. You guys are right. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to have that. Well, really? <laughs> of I was pining for it for so long to be. But um, <laughs> I'm come to realize that if we can be successful at keeping at bay um, the, the worst excesses of big government, and we can keep room for enough people to have enough freedom to keep innovating and making the world better, um, we will have done a, humenda, a tremendous service to humanity, and that our kids, in fact, will live in uh, better worlds than, than we inherited. Um, there was a, um, a great TED Talk a few years ago by now uh, a now, deceased um, Swedish economist um, Hans uh, Roslin, where he, he um, quizzed people on the, um, you know, they gave him three choices like, you know, what do you think the trend lines say about global poverty? You know, has it doubled over the last quarter century? Has it stayed the same? Or has it been cut roughly in half? And um, the answer is that global poverty is cut. In half in in 25 years, which is just a, a remarkable achievement, but people are kind of preconditioned to have seen to, to you know imagine only the bad headlines, that to think that everything's always falling apart. So in the U.S., out of the you know the people that took this survey, only five percent got the right. Answer even given you know just those three alternatives, and then he showed a, a slide of uh, of this room full of chimps, <laughs> and he professed to have also surveyed the the, the chimps, and of course about thirty three percent would get it right just out of randomly <laughs> slapping an A, B, or C. So um, it's kind of a, a you know it's great to appreciate that, that we should have some you know intellectual humility that the, the Harvard kids are actually knowing less about global poverty than the room full of chimps. Um, So (laughs) I think that there's lots of things that we should take to heart and realize that the world's getting better in in many ways. And um, it was fun to put together that chapter that looked at some of the specific things that our partners have been uh, connected to. um, From the the growing appreciation of property rights among development economists who used to really just talk about, um, you know, uh, foreign aid and... um, And this kind of old school model of um, assuming that everything comes from just uh, this donor relationship that breeds dependency, like that's really changed in in great measure, um, thanks to partner organizations of Atlas Network and scholars associated with them. Um, In Latin America, you know, in the 80s when Atlas was born, there were hyperinflations everywhere. Um, There have been um, moves towards sound money that have kept that at bay at uh, or starting to taste again what it looks like when you make some of these mistakes. But, um, but so many countries learned positive lessons and, and adopted those in all these years. And um, you know, well, one that's gonna be fun, um, I'm not sure when this will be uh, broadcast to be, but in, in two weeks, Atlas Network holds its biggest conference of the year. And um, we're putting on our biggest stage. Uh, one of our friends from South Africa um, uh, a man named uh, Temba Nolichingo from the Free Market Foundation of Africa, who fought against apartheid, um, originally oh, wow. as a communist. Oh, wow. Um, but then he came to appreciate, um, uh, through the writings of, of Walter Williams, uh, in fact, um, that, uh, that the reason to uh, despise a- a apartheid um, was that it's an affront to individual rights, um, and that that made him all of a sudden... Um, kind of uncomfortable among his old communist comrades who were fighting um, apartheid um, from a different perspective, but he came to embrace the free market foundations, um, individualist uh, defense of human rights, and that critique of apartheid. So it's fun now as we approach the um, the 30th anniversary of the end of apartheid to be celebrating a man and an organization that were right from the beginning. In opposing that evil institution and um, seeing it crumble, and and now seeing them um, on a very very principled way um, doing two things: um, working for the, um, the the property rights of those old victims of apartheid, people who had lost t- uh, the ability to have title of their land when apartheid was instituted, you know, more than one hundred years ago, but who have never you know, since the end of apartheid been able to navigate. The legal system to, again, get official title to their land. The Free Market Foundation helps those individuals, and I think they're now over 10,000 titles they've helped restore to um, uh, Black uh, South Africans. Um, But at the same time, you now have a political regime in South Africa that wants to um, violate the the property rights of um, of white farmers, just on the basis of race, and again, Free Market Foundation understands that you know the principles are the same. That you know, if you're going to have the rule of law, and the um, and, and those institutions that enable people to invest in in the country, and um, you know those stable conditions that enable prosperity, um, this type of identity politics is is poisonous. Um, you know, even if the uh, um, that the people whose rights you're now <laughs> threatening to violate are, are richer, um, uh, you know, that the principles are the same. So it's great to see an organization like that, that, um, can take some credit for, um, the anti-apartheid fight and still doing really relevant work on the same, same basis, just showing up in a different way.
0: So can you share this some of your favorite, uh, wins from the last 40 years, um, that we were mentioned in the book, I'd love to share some of them with our listeners.
1: Sorry, some of the ones in the in the yes. book. Yeah, I guess that I um, I had uh, a couple of those, including the apartheid one, um, changing the narrative on foreign aid. Um, uh, one of the things I also love is that we've seen in the last, um, you know, maybe twenty five years, especially the rise of public interest litigation um, that uh, folks like the Institute for Justice have pioneered, and you're seeing more often um, so the think tank model sort of stretching from being all about um, you know white papers and, and sort of broad educational efforts to actually suing the government um, in order to protect the rights of individuals who are being treated unfairly um, and you know we, we saw a lot of that on um, you know during during covid um, but also like the uh you know, the school choice movement has um depended on efforts like that and it's uh, it's been you know, one of the great things in the us over the last couple of years is to see um growing educational freedom um, as people have woken up to the problems of the public school monopolies um those, those are some of the areas where uh, i think we can take a lot of pride that we've been able to move the the ball in recent years
0: that's awesome so um something i want to really touch on here is uh, crony capitalism versus free market capitalism you point out several times in the book um that there's a stark difference we've talked about it here and there on the podcast before um i'd love for you to talk about it a little bit with me and explain what the difference is uh because often people conflate the two their capitalism is capitalism period there's nothing (laughs) it's just crony and, and that is crony capitalism um you know why crony capitalism also why is it it seems to continue to be growing around the world. I think that's the impression I got from your writing, but uh, perhaps that was the, the wrong impression. Uh, I'd love to hear from you about that.
1: Yeah. So um, I think that the the big distinction to make is really between um, you know being pro-business and pro-market. There's lots of politicians will stand up and say, that they're pro-business and then, you know, some of us who favor free enterprise will say, okay, like that sounds like somebody we can work with, but what they're envisioning is using the power of government to favor certain industries or certain firms. And this is a hundred percent against um, pro-liberty, classical liberal principles. Um, you know, the, the folks in the freedom movement are against political privileges of all sorts. What we want is a level playing field that you know, creates a trustworthy system of justice, delivering equality before the law. And, um, and when that happens, then you see you know, entrepreneurial capitalism flourish. You get the competition that rewards firms that deliver the most value to their customers. And that's you know, when we get the, the magic of the market. Um, Whereas you know, under a cronyist system, you're actually impeding the magic of the market from taking hold because you're putting sort of a political thumb on the scale and enabling um, you know, some businesses or some industries um, at the expense of, of others. And you know, the, the problem that I see is that um, because crony capitalism exists in, in many places, and people get understandably upset when they see that the game is rigged and they see um, these leaders of businesses as the, the people getting enriched by their political connections. Um, and people tend to, you know, obviously have this negative reaction. Um, so they, you know, they, they observe this problem of cronyism and say, "Ugh, you know, look at the problems inherent in capitalism. Um, we need the government to have more power to regulate this and correct the situation. And, of course, that really makes the problem worse. It breeds more cronyism because firms irrationally need to now conspire even more <laughs> with the politicians that hold more power over um, the, the, uh, the, the profitability of their, of their firms. So, um, uh, so, so I think it is a, a problem that kind of feeds on itself because the reaction that many people have is that government is the corrective when actually you know, crony capitalism is this unholy alliance between big government and big business. So I think that um, part of what we as a, as, a, as a movement need to get better at is in explaining that distinction so that when people uh, react with disgust at what you know, should disgust them, that they realize that, no, that that's bred by the incredible power that government holds over the economy and that there is a way to shrink that power. And if that was shrunk, then the incentives for um, rent-seeking behavior by, um, by businesses will diminish and we'll have more of what we actually favor, which is free market capitalism. Yeah.
0: And to be clear, this isn't a developing world problem. This is something that we have to be very aware of in North America as well, the United States and Canada. Um, I There's some people in the liberty movement that are, have been going around saying like dropping the word capitalism and using free markets rather than using the word capitalism. I do find that helpful in some contexts. So that is something that people are doing to change um, the conversation a little bit um, yeah. because it is hard to explain the difference between the two um, or have the opportunity to anyway. Um, So it seems that there's place in the world, one in particular you write about, uh, is Chile, where they might implement free market practices, but they still implement a terrible political regime, uh, which ultimately leads to destruction. And how can those two things live together, first of all? (laughs) How can you have those two things happening at the same time? Uh, Why does it ultimately end in disaster? Because there is an inclination to think that... Opening up to more free market practices will ultimately lead to political freedom, almost right away. It should, anyway. Um, so why doesn't that happen in places like Chile?
1: Yeah, well, well Chile is such an interesting case um, because you know they. I think we're now almost you know to the the month um, fifty years removed from um, the the coup d'état that got rid of um, a, a really aggressive communist regime. Um, that kind of wanted to replicate what Fidel Castro had done. And it was um, you know, General Augusto uh, Pinochet who took charge and commit terrible human rights abuses against his his rivals for power. Um, and it was just a, an ugly, ugly uh, period. And it was uh, Pinochet dictatorship that then endured for you know, the next, I guess, like 17 years or so. Um, and um, and in early in that process, he um, because the, the economy was such a mess, he turned to um, economists in Chile who happened to have had this relationship with the University of Chicago. And they'd been learning um, uh, good economics from um, students of Milton Friedman, including Arnold Harberger. And, um, and through that process, it, they were there to champion um, free market reforms that... Um, uh, slowly tilted the ship and, and ultimately led to Chile becoming enormously prosperous. And actually, it's been like, um, things kind of worked out the way that you were suggesting we'd, we'd hope they would. Um, you know, 17 years later, they they held democratic elections. They um, you know put in a new government, said goodbye to, to Pinochet, um, and, and he exited, um, which uh, there's not many admirable things I'd, we can say about Pinochet besides he had some good economic advisors and, and he left, but that's more than we get out of most <laughs> dictators. That's true. <laughs> so, um, but but it, the, the Chile story has always been really tough to, for our side, for, for freedom of people to tell because um, those free market reforms that did so much to reduce poverty in Chile and to make it a much more equal society um, they were born out of um, a, a dictator that, that slaughtered his opponents, and that's obviously um, just a, nothing we'd want to defend. So, um, so that story became complicated, and but because the Chile has, has thrived, um, it's also been um, you know I think a sort of this flashpoint where a lot of leftists just resent it, <laughs> and there was an interesting. Um, sort of orchestrated protest movement a couple months before um, I started to put this book together where Chile's, um, you know, there were were, uh, um, riots sort of protesting inequality in Chile, which is kind of ironic because, you know, for the economists who measure the, you know, Gini coefficient, which measures inequality, Chile was one of the most moderate (laughs) countries Um, It does not have extreme inequality in any sense. But there was this narrative that had come to hold that, um, that this system was rigged, um, again, for, uh, for capitalists and that, that there was something nefarious that was sort of anti-working class. Um, and, um, and, and one of the, the research projects that I get to mention within this book um, to, and summarize briefly is something that I got to be involved in, led by an Argentine um, economist who started to study um, um, economic mentality. He went to the World Value Survey, something that's been done over the decades to measure public opinion in different countries on a lot of different factors, and uh, and one of the so he isolated those questions that really related to whether people think that um, free markets are fair or not, or whether they think that the government has a responsibility to equalize income and um, and to um, you know help local businesses thrive and, and so on. And um, and he found that um, Chile was actually the, uh, the country in South America that had the worst respect for free market institutions and ideas. So it, it, at the time of this writing, it was very interesting to, to look at the situation where um, a very hard left government had just been elected and they were ready to rewrite the Constitution in ways to um, kind of reverse a lot of those economic policies that had done so much good for Chile. And it made me think to myself, um, wow, like like, maybe there's a lesson to be learned that while we sort of assumed that the outcomes would speak for themselves, um, the fact that um, the the policies were kind of born in this illegitimate way, born through tyranny, (laughs) that that, you know, sullied the the whole experiment and that we've never succeeded in getting Chileans to believe their own narrative about why um, they've been such beneficiaries of of free market ideas. So that's the complicated story of Chile. And it's gotten more complicated since because um, a lot of our partners have actually done heroic work to educate people about what was at stake in the the, the new constitution that was drafted and put up for a countrywide referendum um, and uh, once they learned the excesses of what the sort of leftist and, uh, and you know there's a lot of sort of uh, like woke aspects to what was being put into the new constitution and that got voted down um, especially by sort of the um, the, the rural communities in, in Chile and the, um, the the indigenous communities which, I think the left always assumes that they um, they own and it turned out that um, there was this public opinion shift. So I think the lesson that, that I draw from all this is that, um, yeah, the, the, Chile was a cautionary tale because a lot of us held it up as an example, but locally it wasn't appreciated as an example, um, uh, but that, that the happy part of the story is that um, it's still an open question about um, you know, where public opinion is gonna go. And in fact, independent um, civil society groups, like the ones that Atlas champions um, and supports, uh, they can play a big role in making a
0: difference. So uh, you sort of end that thought in your book with uh, talking about uh, the very, I mean, scholar Deirdre McCloskey who we've had on the podcast in the past, um, you know, and, and her ideas about, um, about how things changed in history to allow for more prosperity. Um, Having, and, and please go ahead and say something about that. Uh, it's always interesting to talk about it, uh, but I want to mm-hmm. end before we go to break by asking you, which way do you think we're going, um, you know, around the world? Should we be, should we look at it more in a dystopian way or should we be hopeful?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think we should just think about it as a, as a high stakes moment that we're in. Um, but part of why I love Deirdre McCloskey's scholarship is that, um, you know, when she explains how the world got rich, she focuses in on, you know, wasn't any particular technological innovation. It was sort of this change in public sentiment that first happened, um, you know, in the Netherlands and in Britain and spread to the U S. But these people that started to say, you know what, like, it's pretty cool that that guy, you know, can, um, earn a good living trading, (laughs) um, that, you know, that these, um, you know, little tinkerers that are coming up with, um, better ways to, to, you know, produce shoes or whatnot that, you know, yeah, that that guy deserves to be a little hero of our community. Whereas these trades used to be looked down on as something that was just, um, you know, not aspirational. So um, so I think that Deirdre's lesson of like, you know, you actually, the, the mentality that people have towards uh, enterprise and entrepreneurship really, really matters. Um, I, I like it because it is a nice vindication of where Atlas Network has been focusing for 40 plus years of trying to work with local groups that can have that positive impact on how people think about, um, the, the morality of free enterprise and the reasons to limit government um, because it can cause such interference. Um, it's a, a nice validation of, of why we do what we do. And, um, and yeah, I, I totally think that the the glass is um, both half full and half empty at the same time. Uh, it feels like we've um, got less of a consensus for um free enterprise ideas among the young people of the U.S. and and Canada. And there's something tragic about that um, and something that needs correcting if we're going to remain um, vibrant economies. Um, But I think there's also a lot of evidence that there's good things happening in the world and um, and that sometimes we, I think that that those of us um, who are pro-liberty, we sometimes uh, overestimate the competence of our opponents. And there's a lot of countries that, you know, seem like they were lost just a couple of years ago that suddenly are back to saying, wait a second, you know, this doesn't work either. (laughs) So maybe we um, there's always an opportunity, I think, for us to, to come back and, and show what actually works in practice.
0: Well, I love to hear that. So thank you. It <laughs> makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> <reasons>. <laughs> so uh, when we get back from a break, I want to take we're going to say we're going to go on a little trip around the world uh, without ever leaving our, our offices here. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to do that with you. And um, I'll see everybody after the break. Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curious task at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Randy P. Simmons, and John Robson. Remember to follow us on Facebook and on X, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, Now I want to turn to these really great conversations that you recorded in your book that you had with local activists. And as I said before, I love that your book in particular uh, sort of talks with local people. Uh, You're really living your idea that local knowledge is so important and really taking hikes knowledge problems seriously. So that's awesome. (laughs) I wish more authors would do that, actually. Um, Can you give us a quick overview of the general message you heard from the people you talked to, uh, starting off with North America, uh, where we live?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, maybe I'll just set the stage a little bit by by explaining that um, uh, I guess there's six chapters that are are really transcriptions of conversations that I had with different people that I know through our activism and the in the freedom movement. Because um, what I have learned over my you know, 25 years with Atlas Network is a lot of humility that um, I only understand. <laughs> um, a a small bit of what people on the ground are experiencing. So it was fun to uh, go sort of region by region and invite people to, um, to share what they were thinking, especially as we were at that time sort of coming out of COVID or, or, um, grappling with this in between moment where, um, economies were still largely shut down and, um, and we were trying to figure out the, the way forward. And, um, Uh, let's see. So in, in the, we had one uh, discussion with people from the U S and Canada, uh, sort of about in North America, the problems writ large. And here, I think we, we especially got the conversation focused on um, one of those things we mentioned when we were talking about the big challenges of Liberty going forward is like that the popularity of socialism, especially among young people who have never lived under socialism (laughs) and how they tend to, imagine that socialism just means uh, sharing and, you know, these virtues that you sort of learned in, in kindergarten. And of course, sharing is great. Um, and it, you know, often works within, you know, your community of friends or within your family. But um, to extrapolate that to societies of, you know, 300 million plus in the U.S., and to have government as a, the intermediary of that sharing, it's a really different uh, situation. So, um, so that was like a, sort of a focus of our of our conversation it, um, uh, about challenges in, in North America. And one of the things, Sabine, that I thought was was really fun was how the conversation also um, kind of veered off into some of the the cultural challenges that we're experiencing, um, I had in the conversation a a woman named Lenore Scanese, who runs an organization called Let Grow in the US, and her focus has um, has been parenting culture and how um, parents in the, you know, probably since 2000, it's probably gotten worse over the last 20-something years, um, kind of have this conceit that they can insulate kids from disappointment and risk um, and that, um, and that that's a good thing. And Lenore has been helping more and more parents see how destructive this is. And I think it became especially apparent during COVID when we really deprived kids of so many opportunities to learn on their own, grow on their own, and um, and we can debate about you know how much of that. Um, really made sense, and and how much might have made sense if if the um, if COVID was as uh, deadly as we would originally forecast. So you know, I, I don't want to be sort of doctrinaire in dismissing that there you know, there certainly were reasons to take lots of precautions. But I think the larger point of um, uh, having kids think that they can lead this like um, riskless life. Actually insulates people from from learning and and gives a false impression of what it's like to actually be an independent adult, and that that's one of the big challenges in, in the U.S. to have um, to sustain a culture of freedom, you can't have people that are forever babies. There's a reason mm-hmm. why uh, Deirdre um, when she when, when Deirdre McCluskey talks about her philosophy, she sometimes calls it adultism. Yeah, <laughs> that you know, it's all about accepting that there are. Um, responsibilities and consequences that come from your actions and that's what people work out in um, in the free market
0: well as names say adulting is hard but you've got to do it (laughs) (laughs) Um, so next on my list is Latin America
1: yeah um, and let's see um, my recollection is that part of the the conversation there that was really interesting was was first of all to to not miss the progress that had happened Um, there's a scholar we work with named Roberto Salinas Leon, and he said, "And if, if 40 years ago you told me that Mexico would be the U.S.'s number one trading partner, that there'd be monetary stability there, and in you know most parts of um, South America, um, accepting um, dictatorships like um, Venezuela and the crazy Peronists of Argentina, um, you know that that would be." a miracle. And the fact that this is true is um, something we shouldn't take for granted. Um, but there was also uh, um, the discussion also turned to the attractiveness of what, what they often call the the Caudillo mentality, <laughs> which kind of fuels this, um, this endless political populism in Latin America and really makes it tough to um, uh, for, the, for many of those countries to adopt um, sort of a, a a healthy rule of law. Um, and the, the Cadillo is this idea that there's this, you know, this kind of big man <laughs> that's going to ride in on his white horse. And, um, and if only we give him more power, you know, he'll be the good guy that takes vengeance on the bad guys. <laughs> so there's kind of this culture of resentment in the politics of, of many Latin American countries, which makes it, um, difficult for, um, for us to advance a, uh, you know, a free society agenda with humble leadership that devolves power. Um, so, so that's where some of that conversation uh, went, as I, as I recall.
0: And uh, partners in Asia, what did they tell you?
1: Um, yeah, so in, in Asia, um, some of the things that, that stuck out as I think about that conversation, first, um, I'll, I'll mention that one of our partners in India uh, called the Center for Civil Society in New Delhi. Um, it was founded by, uh, um, an academic that had come to the U S for his, um, graduate studies. And then he had this health scare and he decided to go back because he really wanted to create the, um, the Cato Institute of, of India. Then when he found out that, you know, there was nobody else that agreed with him, he realized he had to create sort of the uh, Institute for humane studies or Institute for liberal studies of, (laughs) of, of, uh, of India to, you know, to, to, present the ideas in the first place to young people that could become the staff of the future Cato. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Right. <laughs> um, but part of, the, part of the challenge that he found early on was that when he would talk about concepts like economic freedom, that it didn't, um, didn't translate very well that people assume that, well, the people who benefit from economic freedom are people with economic means. And that's of course, only a fraction of the society in India so I guess you don't care about you know hundreds of millions of people Mm -hmm. and that's you know the opposite of where Parth Shah wanted to concentrate the efforts of Center for Civil Society so he started to recast what they were doing as talking about uh, livelihood freedom because it really was about the right of, of anybody to have an opportunity to better themselves and um um, and maybe one of the things I should have mentioned in the discussion of the the great victories of of our freedom movement, um, CCS in, in India has helped really change the conversation around street vendors, who the, you know that the, the law previously treated them sort of like um, like like blight, <laughs> like these um, this nuisance on the streets that you know um, had no right to be there, and and this let. Um, hundreds of millions of people that exercise, you know, who carve out their livelihood each day, training uh, goods informally. Um, This made them um, illegal and they were uh, prone to at any time being harassed by police, having their goods stolen, being, you know, shaken down for bribes in order to um, operate where they were. And there was sort of this um, kind of interesting saying that, you know, you're, Your business could never be um bigger than the widths of of your arms because you needed to be able to quickly fold up the corners of your blanket um, where you had your goods um on display and you needed to be able to hustle out of there because you were always vulnerable to police and um yeah and then ccs sort of changed that um first in, in in law And then when they realized that, well, the law doesn't implement itself, we need to create associations of street vendors that know how to protect their rights, that have a real established ability to um, get actual justice delivered when the, um, the local police might still be operating under the old rules, they really put in motion something positive that Helps people, um, you know, who are really at the most vulnerable spot in Indian society. So th- that's like a, a really exciting story um, that I think um, also is, is nice to kind of broadcast globally, just because it, it really reminds us that our values work um, most powerfully for those who are kind of left out of the formal economy, and that's part of the good news of what we're all about: is this um, sort of inclusive vision for the future. Um, maybe one other thing that uh, that I remember from that conversation about um, the future of Asia is that you also have this intense frustration among classical liberals from different parts of Asia about um, how um, there tends to be this idea that Asia is different and that some of the economic, um, so some good economic policy can coexist with Uh, authoritarian governments. Um, and then that's been, been true in Singapore. That's how South Korea grew up. And it's certainly part of the, the narrative that, um, the Chinese communist government continues to propagate. So, uh, (laughs) excuse me. So I think there's a interesting question of, of narrative there, um, for us to be trying to reverse what's kind of commonly understood, um, that, Somehow, top down um, capitalism works in, in Asia. And I, I think that over time, we're going to learn that that's not actually true and that we do need to, um, that, the, um, that China is going to encounter um, big economic problems from the, it's really born of the lack of, of freedom and the, the top down mentality that its political leadership have. But it's a, it's a story that's in transition, and the, the ending's not written.
0: Well, that's some exciting perspectives there. Um, and moving on to Europe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and the conversation in Europe was also really interesting because um, I think some of our think tank partners were saying that the, the good news mm-hmm. is that the, um, the COVID would create um, an opportunity, maybe a, a focus on the need for economic growth, because the the malaise was so strong that you'd have more appetite for um, 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 removing some of the red tape that creates barriers to entrepreneurship and so on. Um, I don't know that that's really come true except for in a, in a few countries. You know, in, in Greece we've seen some good things happening and maybe the thing that we, of course we didn't anticipate in 2021 was um, war in Ukraine Uh, which has kind of engulfed all the conversations about about Europe. And um, and I don't know, I'd be interested in your perspective on this, um, Sabine, also. But um, I feel like one of the things that's been notable in our kind of global uh, freedom movement has been the sort of the shot in the arm that our Ukrainian partners have given all of us in the the past year and a half, because they have... um, They've pivoted to do some humanitarian work that's been really noble and just reminds us that this uh, uh, freedom movement is like kind of, an, you know, it's, it's very flexible. It can um, do things that it wasn't built to do, <laughs> but it exists because of the affection and the trust that we all um, have, uh, have grown together. Um, and that, that what they've done on this like humanitarian front now is positioning them to have a voice that they may not have had in the past, in starting to chart what the policy future of an independent Ukraine um, will look like. Um, because I think that there's a, a growing appreciation that they, they know that they, they don't wanna be that. <laughs> they wanna be different from Russia. Yeah. <laughs> and that means they should be open to free market ideas and that they don't want this dependency situation where they're only dependent on you know a new Marshall plan. What they need to do is clear away all the things that have scared um, private investment away in the past, they need to simplify um, economic regulation so that investors aren't afraid to invest in, um, in opportunities there. So that's been kind of the, maybe the, after the book, yes. <laughs> uh, more of it really has changed things in, in Europe. Yeah,
0: it's definitely the, worthy of an epilogue, perhaps, <laughs> in your book, mm-hmm. talking about that <laughs> because it has been amazing uh, how they were able to transition to, to fighting, um, that, that good fight of liberalism. Um, people like Natalia Melnick in your in our network, um, and uh, propped up by people, other people that are perhaps not even Ukrainian, like Tom Palmer, talking about it and, and taking action and, and making sure that um, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, we had Natalia on uh, to talk about what's going on uh, in Ukraine, and it's something that gets me uh, very excited and makes me very very sad at the same time. So yeah, yeah. Um, how about let's move to Africa where we have some amazing partners that I've met, uh, like Linda Kavuka, Magat Wade, like they're just inspirations to me personally. Um, yeah. what, what what did you hear from them? There were two people that you spoke with and um, uh, when you were talking, have that conversation in your book and what did you hear from them?
1: Yeah. Um, part of the takeaway that I, I hope people who read the book and, and focus on that chapter, um I, but I hope the, the takeaway from that is that, um, well, Africa has, it's only recent that we've had a sort of an active freedom movement. We, we've had, you know, you know, that organization from South Africa, the Free Market Foundation, and a couple other um, organizations through the years. But um, the, the freedom movement there has really blossomed over the past uh, 10 or 12 years, thanks to our Partnership with uh, African Students for Liberty, um, which has done a great job at discovering and nurturing people who are now running new efforts and and doing really ambitious things. And this sort of matches the um, the, the incredible potential for Africa to uh, transform this uh, this century ahead. the um, The demographics of Africa are just so interesting. Um, you know, the, I think the average age of Europeans is 42, and North Americans, it's like 38 or 39. And in Africa, I hope I get this right, I think it's like 19. So it's like you know, half of what we have in the, in, in, you know, the developed West. And, um, and, and it speaks to this enormous opportunity where um, you know, a quarter of the world will be African by 2050. And if we fail, if, if the countries of Africa fail in creating um, pathways for people to become prosperous, um, it could be a, a real distressing situation and a, a real um, burden on, on um, economic growth. But if they get it right, um, Africa could be a real engine of, of productivity. And, um, and there's definitely some signs of, of good examples happening that can help make this transition. Um, the economist George Ayidi who died, um, I guess it was shortly after this book was published, um, you know, a year and a half ago or so, um, he always talked about um, a, a, the need for a cheetah generation. He, he said, you know, my generation were the hippo generation <laughs> and it really involved people who had fought for European, uh, for um, independence from the old colonial powers but who just assumed that by having native Africans, um, running these massive bureaucracies <laughs> that somehow the outcomes would be better. And, you know, the, the truth is that, you know, dysfunctional systems are, are dysfunctional, um, no matter who <laughs> yes. put in charge. Um, so part of the, um, the work of our African partners is to uh, make people aware that, um, when when people resent the old, you know, the, the colonial power, sometimes they say, "Oh, like you know, those capitalist groups of the West that you know have tainted our <laughs> our continent." Actually, what um, those uh, colonial the, the, the colonial governments brought was you know the import of twentieth um, century governance models, which were largely kind of more socialist than they were free market, and that that's part of what haunts. Um, Africa today and what has disrupted um, you know, the continent from some of its old traditions were much more about local markets and decentralized decision making and so on. So there's a, a really interesting narrative there for Africa. And um, and we're also seeing some um, really creative work by some of the think tank partners there to make it easier to um register businesses, easier to trade over borders. Um, but um, as um, Wade will still point out that, um, the, that the problems are still just tremendous and we shouldn't overestimate how much work needs to be done. So um, that's another one where it's a uh, it's really exciting for us to see there's sort of this, you know, Delta where the rate of change of opinion and, and new efforts is great, but they're also still, you know, swimming in the molasses that we <laughs> has described that makes it really tough to, to make change.
0: And finally, a, a place that is near and dear to my heart, the Middle East and North Africa.
1: Yeah. And uh, when we did this conversation, um, we were, uh, um you know, it's about celebrating 10 years since the Arab Spring. And uh, some of the folks involved in the conversation were commenting on how the the big lesson was that um, overthrowing a regime is a lot easier than building a new system. <laughs> so there was a lot of um, maybe false hope that um, by toppling um, what seemed to be corrupt, um, that somehow that was going to set in motion um, Positive change that really hasn't happened in in many of the countries of North Africa and the Middle East, Um, and that a lot more work has to go into the task of um, uh, popularizing these ideas. You know, as as Deirdre would suggest, where you you need people that understand why the cronyism is destroying your country and why the you know the small entrepreneurs that are so abused in these systems um, need to be respected and that that's like a, a monumental change that makes it really difficult to, um, um, to see some of the, the, the countries that have stagnated, um, you know, it's tough to see them making a, an abrupt change. And maybe nowhere is that, in my mind, more evident than in, um, in Lebanon. Um, we had Patrick Mardini, who runs the Lebanon Institute for Market Studies, involved in that conversation. And I got to um, you know, see some of the amazing work that he does on the ground when I um, uh, traveled back in uh, June to be with him for programs that they were doing in Beirut and in Tripoli. And um, uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing what they're accomplishing, but it's at the same time, um, there's so much um, corruption within the Sort of political elite there um, it's tough to see the way out
0: <laughs> oh I know <laughs> uh, um, so as you thank you so much for sharing all that I, I just I love hearing from you about what you're what the partners are talking about because we sort of got a tour of the entire world in, in about like 10 minutes here which is really <laughs> awesome um, and sadly we're going to have to start winding down the conversation because we're coming to the end of our, our, our conversation and I want to turn to some of your conclusions in the book because they really are very important you, you argue that Atlas partner organizations are doing good by trying to popularize liberalism. and you just mentioned that especially um, with the Arab Spring um, it's the best example of this um, within their respective communities uh, what could a revival of authentic liberalism really accomplish?
1: yeah so the, towards the end I, I i guess i do a little bit of a pep talk um mm-hmm. maybe talking about some of the challenges that we see but then um you know anthony fisher used to quote this little bit of poetry that i'm not going to be able to remember um <laughs> uh the, the actual wording but it's along the lines of you know from the perspective of a, of a raindrop saying you know um you know I, i'm so small how could i ever um uh you know, uh, refresh the whole world that seems so dry. But, um, but of course, you know, if we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of raindrops, we can't get discouraged. You know, we, we all have to play our little part, even though we, um, it it might feel like that the entire task is, is daunting. Um, So, so part of what I try to do is to um, just to throw out there that, you know, if, if we do create a more prosperous future, if we do, um, uh, avoid sort of the reversal of, um, of some of the positive trends that we've seen, um, um, alleviate poverty over the, the last quarter century. Um, you know, humanity is going to be able to enjoy an amazing century ahead. Um, you know, I've always told my kids, like, you know, I, I want to travel to the moon. I want to see um, space travel where I can look up at, you know, the, the earth and the sky. Like that. We should be thinking about how, um, how many amazing things lie on the horizon if we get things right. And we should you know, take to heart that the, the stakes are high and that we've seen other countries that have reversed away from what had been working. Um, uh, fall into you know, terrible um, situations. I think right now about our friends in, in Venezuela um, that have seen their economies destroyed, forcing the migration of you know, almost everybody who's talented out of Venezuela as it's now you know, run by a, a police state essentially. Um, you, know, you know there's nothing about this that is sort of um, you know self uh, sustaining. And that, you know, each generation, even in societies like Canada and the U.S., where um, it feels like there's a lot we can take for granted, um, you, know, you can burn through that cultural capital <laughs> and we could be facing some of the the horrors that we see in other parts of the world if we're not careful. So um, I guess that, it, it, yeah, but part of what I want people to take away from this is that um, it is really high stakes that we're, we're living through one of those interesting moments in history where it feels like you could go in uh, a couple different directions. And um, and, I, and I would hope people don't get discouraged by this, but they actually find in the book some examples of organizations that in their own way are pointing people to a real positive alternative.
0: Uh, so Brad, we've talked about a lot and let, let's try and bring the conversation full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether the liberty movement is in trouble?
1: Yeah, I guess that I would want people to um, have this visceral sense that, yeah, like I'm living at a really important time in history. And the fact that I get discouraged when I see news headlines that remind me how dysfunctional our political elites are, and that remind me that there are some big economic storm clouds in front of us, um, you know, that we need to take to heart that there are big challenges. Um, but then let's also have the, the perspective that, um, you know, that the Liberty Movement was sort of born out of some dark days in the 1940s where you know, the, the entire world had been at war and where the prevailing ethos was that um, governments were going to need to dominate in peacetime as they had in war and um, and somehow we've we were able to reverse that. Um, uh, some by intellectual leadership of folks like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and so on, and um, and then also some from um, learning hard lessons of um, enduring bad governments and having people patiently critiquing um, why that didn't have to be. Um, Um, you know, in place forever, that there were smart reforms that could make incremental progress happen. And that's really the story of how we um, uh, came to, you know, defeat communism and spur a more um, globally connected economy that's lifted, you know, know, a billion or more people out of poverty. And we should really take heart from the fact that um, these positive things have happened and that um, there is a cost effective way to affect change, and that tends to be by working with organizations that aren't focused just on the next election, but are thinking long term, how do we make it so that more people want economic freedom and political freedom and will vote that way in the future? And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing. The uh, you know, It's now almost 600 organizations that we partner with that are part of the freedom movement that Atlas network is sort of privileged to connect and, and convene and that these are um, you know it's, it's really invigorating to be involved with such organizations so whether that's as a as a donor as a you know as an intern or staff member or volunteer I hope people sort of take a look at the opportunities to become actively engaged make it part of your, your life because um, it certainly makes me feel like there's um, some importance to mine um, even though we uh, know that um, you know, the, the problems we're trying to address are, are huge. Um, you know, together, we can make uh, small differences that add up to a big difference.
0: Brad Lips, I really enjoyed having you on with me today on The Curious Task. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Sabine. It's been a lot of fun.
0: The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Local Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.